Hello and welcome to an all new Talking Foosball mini-series. My name is Nick Wiltog and I'll be guiding you through these next four episodes where we take an in-depth look at what's been going wrong at Werder Bremen. This series is called Werder Bremen, a club in demise. And what we'll do is taking a closer look at Werder Bremen's history, telling you why they once were uh, one of the Bundesliga greats, what they've accomplished in the past, and where it all went wrong last season. And given the scope of what we are setting out to do here, I needed a heavy hitter. I needed a true Werder Bremen expert to join me in this podcast series. And I'm glad to say that I've managed to get just the right man for the job. I didn't have to look further than Talking Foosball's fantasy podcast to find Werder Bremen expert and author of the brilliant book Werder Bremen, Populäre Irrtümer und andere Wahrheiten, which translates roughly to Werder Bremen, Popular Misconceptions and Other Universal Truth. It's, of course, Florian Reinecke. Welcome to the show, Flo. Great to be finally podcasting with you. Yeah, um, yeah I'm really looking forward to it. Thanks for having me, Niklas. Well, let's start with the good part, parts then. Uh, the the relegation last season was probably not that great. I'm not looking that much forward to talking to it myself, to be honest, but no. we'll we'll have to get to that. We, but, we um, procrastinate uh, talking about that for <laughs> a yes, few Yes, this is why it's four episodes. We'll, we'll, we'll have it at the end. We have it at the end. So let's, let's start with Werder Bremen's historic place in the Bundesliga. And uh, some of you might not have been following the Bundesliga for 20 or 30 years, so you might not be used to seeing Werder Bremen... You, so you might be used to seeing Werder Bremen down there in the bottom half of the table. The green and whites have finished in the bottom half of the table in seven of the last ten years of the Bundesliga. However, prior to that, they were, at times, one of the best sides that the Bundesliga had to offer. Granted, there have there's never been a period of total dominance that has been experienced by sides like Gladbach or Bayern, but Werder was for many years always one of the top teams of the Bundesliga. So Flo, if you wanted to explain to someone who hasn't been following the Bundesliga for too long why Werder Bremen is a heavy hitter within the Bundesliga, where would you start? So uh, I think it's like they had a few challenges uh, as a club to get to the top of of Germany, and I think um, you you can say that there were a few key phases uh, where Bremen developed as a club, um, and I think the the starting point is to be the unrivaled number one in Bremen, which like we take it as a given right now, but it really wasn't uh, after the Second World War. Um, another Bremen team was playing in the highest German division and that was the Bremer SV. So Bremen had to become the number one in Bremen. And then the second big step in club history was qualifying for the Bundesliga. Because we um, after the Second World War, and I, and I think we have to do a small detour um, to that time uh, as well, maybe later on because uh, I don't want to just like uh, pretend that nothing happened because Bremen's history during the second war is, is nothing to be proud of, about and I, I think we should mention that but um, the real sporting development started after the second world war and after they 
clinched uh, being the number one in Bremen. They qualified for the Bundesliga, um, which started in 1963. And that was really the the key for success. Uh, Apart from making like the usual stuff that has to go right for a club, like making the right decision when when signing people, um, um, being uh, yeah clever financial wise. Um, but during that time, that wasn't like the a real issue because um, it was a bit socialized in in Germany. So they were fixed amount of money that the players could earn. That was like set in stone, and there were fixed amount of mo- uh, money that players could cost during that time. So most of the clubs could sign in theory every player. They just like, uh, what was happening during that time was, of course, that they signed a player for very little money, but they said, yeah, we give you this kind of job on the side that you don't really have to do anything but get paid for as well. And that was how stuff was done during that time. And so uh, Bremen was able to establish themselves in the Bundesliga and as a club that at least was like a top 10 club in, in Germany. And um, I think every every club that started in the Bundesliga was on kind of equal footings um, because of the uh, yeah financial wise being most of the clubs really on a similar level, uh, unlike today. And they had a guy, um, I'm not sure like how, um, how prominent he is outside of Bremen. Um, his name was Hansi Wolf and uh, he was, uh, he was a Willy Lemke kind of guy um, in that he, uh, his father u- used to be a horse salesman and he, wa- he was basically a horse salesman manager kind of guy. He took over the reins at Bremen after the Second World War and he was a really shady and dodgy personality at times. And if you read some of his quotes, uh, it's it's it can be borderline racist, but he was because um, uh, he, he was saying he could basically uh, sign any player, no matter the ethnical background, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, but he used other terms than that for for that. But um, so I, I don't want to glorify him as a person, but he was really savvy and uh, how he spent money and how he made dealings, and it was like sometimes close to blackmailing people um but that was it was a wild time and i think to succeed in germany during that time you needed that kind of wild guy at the top of the club um to to be able to be successful uh and uh, he he definitely was that and he was a one man show so he he had all the might in the club and he pulled all the weight during that time. And, and uh, yeah. Yeah, Bremen were pretty successful straight from the off because uh, Bremen won the second ever Bundesliga season in 64 65. Uh, I mean, and, and this is 
maybe worth mentioning uh Werder Bremen if, if you don't know it they've won four national championships Bundesliga championships and the first of them came in 64 65 the others came in 87 88 92 93 and 2003 and 2004 so right from the off they were pretty successful um so what what happened after afterwards well how did Bremen fare after that first championship it was a small demise, uh, and I, I think that's like that's a theme we'll we'll hit on a lot because uh, I, I told you about this guy Hansi Wolf, um, who who was doing stuff in a really old-fashioned way. Uh, he, he was a one-man show, and it stayed that way as long as he. Um, was in charge at Bremen was, uh, and that was until the mid seventies. Uh, he didn't change his way, but everything changed. And if you like, if you don't go with the time, uh, you will have disadvantages as a club, and that's what happened. Uh, it wasn't, um, it wasn't the time anymore to to do stuff like he did. And that's why they went from having a really good team, although it has to be said that was um, a sensational championship in 1965. So no one thought they would be champions after that season, but they made some good key signing. And that's definitely an instance where you can find an example of how Hansi Wolf worked things out. Because during, like, one of the key players for the championship was. Um, Hans-Dieter Höttges, uh, probably like Bremen supporters know him as the Eisenfuss, so the Iron Feed. And um, he's objectively one of the best players who ever played for Bremen. He was uh, a German international. Um, he, he played until the end of his career only for Bremen, although he, he, like, he played alongside Beckenbauer and Gerd Müller and Günther Netzer and all these greats. Uh, during the um, international breaks, and then were playing in relegation battle for Bremen. So really, uh, <laughs> really funny uh, how, how that could happen during that time, just because of uh, the money weren't so uh, different at, at these places. And um, uh, like the whole Bundesliga wanted him. He played at Gladbach, and they were pl playing in the second uh, tier. Uh, in the second division, uh, regional division, that was called uh, during that time, and like everyone wanted him, he he was playing for Germany already, and uh, after a match with Germany, Hansi Wolf just like he went to the national team, put Hötkes uh, uh, in his car, drove him like three hundred kilometers to Bremen, <laughs> <laughs> got him in his office. Then he got Sepp Piontek, who, who was one of the best Bremen defenders during that time. And he went on being like a great pairing, Piontek and Tutkis. Uh, he, he got a Piontek in touch. He gave these two young lads a lot of money and said, you guys go now, enjoy yourself and uh, travel to Paris. And Piontek and Hötkes, um traveled for one week to Paris uh, that was in the summer before the championship season. One week to Paris. Then Bremen had a trip to North America where Hurtges, he was still a Gladbach player, by the way, uh, 
they they hit him with a hat and sunglasses and got him on the plane to North America and that was where he signed for Bremen. But that was like that was how Hansi Wolf did did things during that time. But it's just like uh, in the start of the seventies, I would say that didn't fly anymore. They tried to to buy themselves success, which and that's also a, a theme that will repeat itself. Didn't work. It uh, like buying success don't work at Bremen. That's something we should learn uh, out of the history books. They made a huge deal um, with the town Bremen. They sponsored the club. They were having like the most amount of money of every Bundesliga club at the start of the seventies. They bought players left, right, and center. German internationals like big names from from Gladbach. A few. They were very close on signing Günther Netzer as well. But like Netzer is also, he's a savvy guy as well. He uh, only wanted to come if he um, were allowed to be the, the publisher uh, of the um, uh, club magazine, which for some reason was a way to get the guy's money um, that didn't count towards like the salary cap that were in place during that time. But uh, Bremen decided against it, and so like the the guy who probably was the best of all guys they wanted didn't come in the end, and they had a, a lot of players bought for a lot of money, and they had the older guys like Hötges and Pico Schütz, who was uh, the great skipper um, of Bremen during during that time, only played for Bremen in his uh, senior career and. Uh, re- really a swell guy who unfortunately died too soon uh, a few be- uh, years back um, because of cancer. But um, there were a lot of friction in, in the team between the new guys and the old guys, and it never worked out that way. They they, they uh, drowned a lot of money uh, trying to, to get to the top. And in the end, that was the start of them uh, constantly fighting relegation until it finally happened, and that's also seemed that sounds familiar, doesn't mm. it? <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. And we in, will get to yeah. 1980. Yeah, we'll... it, it was then that they got relegated for the first time. Mm. Yeah, uh, we'll we'll get to that later on. Um, but yeah, basically the 70s, a lot of money spent. Uh, even even Uli Hoeneß and Paul Breitner flirted with uh, Werder Bremen at the yes. time. Uh, Udo Latek, I seem to remember, wanted to bring them to to the club if he was signed as Werder Bremen's coach. And Werder Bremen didn't go with Udo Latek because, once again, they, they skimmed where it really mattered because uh, Latek's expectations in terms of what he wanted to earn were a little bit too high for, for, yeah. the, for the people and, in charge at Werder. Yeah, it was around like a thousand Deutsche Mark too much for them. It was like really a ridiculous amount of, of money. Uh, that mm. was like the, the reason that Latik didn't came. So the seventies after after the championship in sixty five, there there weren't really a brilliant period of time, a lot of money spent. Um, so let's talk a little bit. Uh, let's let's talk a little bit about uh, why both of us are Bremen fans. Both you and I have been to Bremen on several occasions. We've followed the team for decades now. Uh, we do bleed green and white, um, so and so does the city of Bremen. So, how integral is Werder to to the makeup of the city of Bremen? 
It's everything. So Werder is Bremen and Bremen is Werder. I, I, I even think that was a slogan once, um, if I remember correctly. But it's really how it is. And um, I mean, for, for myself, I got to be a Bremen supporter um, kind of um, because of my family, because my father stems from Bremerhaven, which is part of the Bundesland Bremen. But it's like it's sixty kilometers uh, to the north uh, of isn't, Bremen. Isn't 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 Bremerhaven a little bit what Gelsenkirchen is to North Rhine-Westphalia in terms of the economic situation? Yeah, it's, it's the poorest part. Um, hmm. It's 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 and Bremen is the poorest Bundesland as well of Germany. Like all these, um, I mean, there there uh, some regions in eastern Germany that aren't doing well. But Bremen is still the poorest uh, of all, uh, economic-wise, and that's, of course, is also a, a, a problem why Bremen has has trouble financial-wise, because like all the industry that used to be in Bremen is all gone. Um, so the, the all the shipyards, uh, I don't think there's any shipyard left, and there there, there was a lot uh, of of that in in Bremen during that time. Yeah. Yeah, but uh, like I said, my, my father stems from from Bremerhaven, and uh, but I uh, grew up and uh, still live in in Cologne. So I'm, I, I was always a guest in Bremen, and I, I I've I felt at home, but I'm not from there myself. Um, but like I I had some connection to Bremen, and then um, as I started following the Bundesliga. I just I, I just fell in love with this beautiful man called Rudy Fuller. And I mean, <laughs> how can you resist his curly hairs? It's just not possible. And that's Tom how I, yeah. yeah. Um, quickly, what do you prefer, Harkerback or Kölsch? Uh, definitely Pils. Uh, it hasn't have to be Harkerback. But like, since they're one of the few sponsors of, of Werder Bremen, we probably should give them a shout out. So, uh, yes, drink Harkerback. Yeah. Drink Harkerback as much as you can. Yeah. Don't think about your health. It, it definitely helps, helps Bremen. Um, <laughs> yeah, but um, uh, regarding the connection between club and city, I mean, uh, I said I live in Cologne, and Cologne is a city that lives football as well. But the connection between Bremen and and Vada is even greater than that is between Cologne and FC. Because um, in Cologne, there's other stuff to do. Uh, if I want to say it like drastically, uh, well, if Cologne doesn't fare well, we like it's it's a it's a big city with a lot of things happening. But uh, Bremen is is really part of the identity of um, the city, and that's especially true. Since the double season and 2004, because I like I've always got the feeling that that raised the confidence of the whole region, being able to compete um, with the best in an uh, environment that's really stacked against them. Um, yeah, to be able to compete against the best that that started actually happening after Vodabrim was relegated for the first time back in in the early eighties, and uh, you know what followed was Otto Rehagel's time at the club, and uh, during that time the the club won 
two DFB-Pokals in 91 and 94, and it won two championships in 88 and in 93. Um, and, indeed, they won the Cup Winners' Cup in 92, which was uh, quite a thing for, for a team from comparatively such a small city, well, not small city, but a medium-sized city in, in by German standards. Um, so what all these stats and numbers point to anyways that Verde actually had the their greatest time back their greatest times back in the early in, in the 80s early 90s and later on we'll get to the odds a little bit later on so what was key for Verde's success during those early 80s and uh, during the 80s and the early 90s um so what was key for for that success before we get to Thomas Schaaf and his era yeah uh, you already mentioned Otto Reagel of course he's um probably the biggest part of that um but i would stay by saying out that the brim had a lot of luck uh, during that time um because like they were playing the last year uh, as a second division in germany was divided and that was brutal uh, there were 22 teams in a division only the champion got promoted automatically to the bundesliga so it's, it's a brutal setup in itself um, but but Bremen were en route um, to getting promoted, and then their coach Kuno Klötzer had a car accident, and um, he had lingering long-time effects from these car accidents, headaches, and nausea, and and wasn't at the end wasn't able to finish the season with them, and that's where Rudi Assauer thought of his good friend Otto Reager, who helped Bremen. Um, in relegation battle in 1976 before. And he came in and he back then he was a journeyman coach, never staying long at a club, always getting fired. And he, he came in to finish the season in the second division and got Bremen promoted. Although, like I said, they were already en route. So uh, most of the credit should go to Kuno Klötzer. And it was really unfortunate for him because um, I think it was the end of his his coaching career, the, the, the car accident. Um, but for Bremen, it was a stroke of luck because Riagel was um, pivotal to the success. And the second big figurehead during that time was Willy Lemke. Um, and he came after Riagel was already there. And the summer after Bremen got promoted, Rudi Assauer got the call from Schalke which is also a theme we'll probably can touch on <laughs> later. But he saw the better perspective uh, at being manager at Schalke, which is a nice word to say that like there were more money involved. Uh, um, I mean, to, in, in Rudy Asso's defense here, and um, I, I can I can tell you a story from, from the 70s as, as he, back from his playing days at, at Werder. When he he actually found out during one of those seasons that uh, the club didn't have any money to give their their players a Christmas bonus, so what Assau did, who was a man who back then at least uh, didn't didn't live the high life, he was he was actually able to save a lot of money during his professional days. He actually extended a loan to the club, saying, "Okay, you guys pay me back when you have the money, and give the players their Christmas bonus in order to keep morale up." Rudy Assauer wasn't repaid that loan until the 90s. <laughs> so, 
until the 90s. So financially speaking, Werder Bremen were in a lot of trouble after after that experience experience uh, experiment with the million the million and elf, the uh, the uh, team that almost saw Günther Netzer join Werder Bremen. Um, and additionally, I mean, Rudy Assauer, he was always trying to tinker and fix things yes. around. I mean, he put himself on the sidelines a couple of times, even without having a coaching license, just putting like figureheads in place, uh, like old coaches who were nearing 80. Yes. <laughs> um, so Rudy Assauer did, did a lot for the club, kept it over, kept kept the heads over water as best as he could. But in the yeah. end, when the offer from Schalke came... Uh, he he went there and uh... yeah, he he did a lot for the club. I I agree with that, especially as he was uh, a player. I think he was also the skipper for a few years um, back then, but it didn't work out. So Asso and Bremen, I don't think was a perfect fit, and um, I I didn't mean that in 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 a bad way. Although like um, from all I've read, is because like Schalke were trying to to get uh, to the top with more money. And of course, that's more attractive for a manager like uh, Rudy Assa. Yeah. Why not? It, um, it, it always is. And yeah. uh, I mean, we, we could always, we could, we could always, always tell the story why Rudy Assa went to, uh, ended up at Werder Bremen. It's because Uli Hoeneß didn't sign in that position. Yeah. Um, Uli Hoeneß actually was offered the, uh, was in talks with Werder Bremen about becoming their sporting director back in the day. He didn't take them up on it. And how different history would have been if he had. Yeah, and who, um, he was close to signing as a player as well. So, yeah, there's, it, it, it's always, if you look at football history, it's always a lot of what-ifs. Um, I, I, I mean, I, I remember uh, that um, Peter Cech actually had a trial at, at Bremen and as he was an 18-year-old keeper from Czechoslovakia and, and stuff like that and, yeah. and Luis Soares had agreed terms with Werder Bremen as well at one point yeah so oh why yeah <laughs> but uh, let's talk you, about you, you'll Uli find these stories at every club and we, we'll, yeah. we'll talk about the happy coincidence uh, Willy Lemke Uli Hoeneß's nemesis Willy Lemke yes uh, and uh, like I said in, in I think you uh, at springtime I saw said no uh, it's the last season for me at Bremen and like it's typical of what was going wrong with Bremen that they weren't able to find a successor. Like the next season already started, they were playing the Intertoto Cup, and they not had a successor for Asawa. So well, basically a club without a manager. Uh, Otteriaga was the coach, and uh, during during summer, like the the needy clubs of Europe were playing these uh, Intertoto Cup with like no sporting consequences whatsoever, just to get a bit of money. And they were playing at Brøndby, so in Denmark, and um, going there by ferry. And uh, um, Dr. Böhmert, the, the president, and Klaus Fischer, uh, the vice president, uh, they were playing skat uh, with a politician named Willy Lemke and uh, Skat Skat is a is, is not weed it's it's a german card game okay <laughs> i'm not I, like I, I don't even know that it's a <laughs> name for weed that's even funnier i think but um yeah and 
they were telling about Lemke how hard it is to find someone because they wanted a guy um, who was responsible at Stuttgarter Kickers, but he he didn't came in the end. Um, the name escapes me at the morning. It's it's not important, but like the wife of Klaus Fischer said, why why don't you do it, Willy? And that's really how how the ball got rolling on Lemke changing from being a pol politician to being the manager of Bremen and it, it, like the the task was to convince the guys who give Bremen the money the sponsors and they like most of them were conservatives and um Willy Lemke was uh, uh, in um, for like he was a politician for the SPD so the more left leaning party during that time and um they 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 did a bit of a trojan horse strategy because uh they they had a meeting with all the sponsors and uh, willy lemke should just talk about what they need in a position of the manager and what a manager should do a manager they all wanted to find and they talked about like with some guys they knew being a, a sponsor that afterwards he should say and suggest that Lemke could do the job. And that's how they did it. And, <laughs> and like he was telling a great story uh, um, what a manager of a Bundesliga club should uh, do. And then some guys say, oh, why, why uh, don't you do it? Oh, yeah. that's And everyone chimed in and they were having the feeling that it was their idea in the first place. But they, they got played. And um, these two, Lemke and Rehagel, they were a perfect match for Bremen. And I, I still think it could have gone horribly wrong. And uh, while writing my book, I, uh, I talked uh, lengthy with, with Lemke. Um, and like, he admits like, he has not a real clue of player evaluation or... Like, the whole sporting side of things, like, it wasn't his forte, and he didn't do any of these stuff. So, Rehagel came to Lemke if he wanted a player and said to him, sign this player. Lemke wouldn't even look at who that player is, basically, but try to sign him uh, to his best of his abilities. And he was good at it. Yeah, he, he was really good at... Uh, um, getting players, um, bargaining, so uh, that was his strong suit. But if Rehagel like wouldn't have had these knacks for for getting good players who aren't expensive, um, I think that would have been a total mess. Because because Lemke w was really uh, doing Rehagel's bidding, but because of they worked really good together as a tandem, and Rehagel had a good eye for which players the club needs, it, it worked out perfectly. And on the financial side of things, that was like a second, um, yeah, after Hansi Wolf was like, he, he was ahead of his time when he started his career and was uh, uh, overtaken by time as he ended it. And I think it's similar with Lemke. He, he was really ahead of the time when he started except maybe a club like Bayern with, with Hoeneß. Um, but like Bremer was up there in management skills when Lemke took over because he had a clear uh, 
plan what he wanted to do and um like and he had what what he told me uh, what he couldn't understand about Bremen today is like we have one simple rule we don't spend money we don't have no matter what and i don't think it's a silly rule uh, and it's funny how like there are not a, a lot of clubs that follow this rule uh in modern football but that's what uh, that's how how bremen got ruled under under lemke and uh so like these two strokes of luck with lemke and with rehagel led to bremen being really successful although a third stroke of luck was them getting rudy fuller so the guy with the nice curly hair because that was when rehagel didn't have the greatest eye as usual because he really wanted dieter schatzschneider from hannover second division side but schatzschneider signed with hamburg so hamburg uh, yeah really uh <laughs> taking the bullet there uh for for bremen signing schatzschneider and the replacement candidate for schatzschneider was rudy fuller so he actually actually was a second choice guy but like Without Rudy Fuller, everything else wouldn't have been possible because they sold him in 1987 for the unheard of amount of eight, uh, close to 8 million Deutsche Mark, which was insane money back then. Um, and Bremen were able to to buy players and to modernize the Weserstadion with the money they got out of this. Four, 4 million euros is still a lot of money by today's standard. And this was in 87, which yes. is... Uh, 34 years ago so adjust that for inflation and you'll (laughs) you get a healthy amount of money so it it was an insane deal so uh i think all like the stars aligned well for bremen during during that time rehager was a good coach and he like he was a really good like he unearthed a lot of great talent and um, which isn't possible anymore um, because of all the scouting structure, etc., we got today. That yeah, that, I mean, that wasn't existing back then. I mean, they, nobody had a Y Scout account, unfortunately, <laughs> or fortunately. <laughs> yeah, probably not. And I mean, it wouldn't be possible that like they had an unknown Norwegian player uh, at trial to do a trial at Bremen. Uh, that was Rune Bratzett who went on being one of the best uh, defenders uh, in the world, you, you could say, you could argue, top 10 defender in the world during his prime. Um, I'm not sure Alex, if you will follow me uh, on that. I, I definitely will. I mean, it, it speaks volumes about his quality that Alex Ferguson wanted to sign him for Manchester United one year after he'd retired. Um, yeah. So... That is how good Rune Baratzad was. Yeah, and he had a trial at Bremen, and Rehaga said, okay, um, um, r- r- like he had to play against Rudy Fuller all the time. And then he saw, okay, he could hang with Rudy Fuller, an, an unknown Norwegian guy. And they signed him for like really little money. Like, this, this is not happening anymore. Like, a guy like Rune Baratzad. He would have been on the radar of big clubs like with 15 years old, probably. But back then, they, they were able to sign him and for like, 
I think two hundred thousand or one hundred thousand. It was very little money, um, even back then. And um, like these, like the the big transfers, like a guy with Rudy Fuller, but also these smaller ones, um, where they got like they got a Thomas Walter, for instance, from a regional club uh, at Hamburg and. Michael uh, Marco Border, of course, um, uh, Dieter Alts later on, they were all small club signings that, that went on um, being internationals for, for Germany. And it's like... Um, that, that, doesn't, that doesn't happen from anymore, unfortunately, no. because these days, uh, guys like Alts or Border would have been picked up by Bundesliga side and put into the youth academy at an early age at a... You know, I mean, you hear, hear about some of these players these days, like Miroslav Klose, yeah, but, Jonas Hector. Yeah, but but you know, it's yeah, Hector really, is really, really the last I think um, that that could go on making that career. With Klose, it was exceptional, but it was still like back in these days when when Germany were, were still playing Lothar Matthäus at forty years old. The uh, dark they, ages. They were not, yeah, <laughs> they were not. Not thinking in like uh, process-wise uh, how to develop the best use prospects. So yeah, but um, yeah, a lot have changed, um, and they were able to pull stuff up that it's just not you. You can't do that anymore. But the problem is they tried for a long time to still do their work like they did, um, and it's you have to develop. You always have to develop as a club. And if it's if that's not happening, um, you you're going to get eaten by the competition, and that's what happened in the end. Uh, I, I think. Um, all right, all right. Let's talk about what happened after Rehagel after the break. <laughs> We're back and we're in the mid-90s. Uh, Rehagel left for Bayern Munich in 95. Um, yes. And after he left, it was truly dreadful times for the Green and Whites. Um, I actually remember going to my first Werder match uh, back then. It, it was a 2-1 loss against uh, Schalke on the last match day of the league. And the coach on the sideline was actually the guy I have on... The cup of coffee, I'm the the coffee cup I'm drinking from today. It's it's Dixie Döner, uh, who once was labeled the East German Franz Beckenbauer. As a coach, he didn't enjoy the same measure of success as Beckenbauer did with the national team, to say the least. Um, Döner had succeeded a Dutchman who replaced Rehagel, and his, the name of the Dutchman is of course Ad Demos, who later on should turn out to be a Dutch journeyman coach. Um, Demos, he brought a lot of new ideas to the Weserstadion, but those ideas weren't necessarily going down well uh, with the players at the club. Yeah, although um, from from what I've heard, he, he brought a lot of new ideas, 
but that's framing it very positively for at the most i think we like still to these days a lot of guys if they analyze the situation um they think the Moss was a great uh, innovational coach but bremen wasn't ready for it but like from from all i've heard that the truth is he like his man management skills were abysmal like the players hated, would agree <laughs> the, the players hated him really hated him he were he, he I'm, I'm not sure what i'm like what curse words i'm allowed to say so uh let's All let's just say that he wasn't a nice human being and that was the biggest problem uh, in my opinion it wasn't the biggest problem that he tried to play with a four-man back line um for the first time in in club history no the issue was like he wasn't he wasn't fitting in as a person. That was the biggest problem. And that's, in the end, why they let him go. It wasn't because of um, not being good in, in the Bundesliga. They would have like tried longer with him if it weren't for um, a total fallout between team and coach and not because of a four-man back line. I, I think that's some kind of legendary um, tales uh, if you talk about Bremen and that, like you, you, uh, you got the feeling that Atomos got handed uh, a bad hand, being the successor of of Reagel. but he was in charge of his own doom, and uh, I th I think he had a, a shot of making it at Bremen if he weren't like a dick. <laughs> but it's a lot of pressure taking over after a coach who's been there for 14 years uh, now Dixie Derner who we mentioned earlier he didn't stay for too long because the results didn't really shape up in his favor as well he was followed by a former player Wolfgang Zitke who stayed between 97 and 98 before he was given the boot because the results weren't going his way either and after that and this is so painful followed Felix Maggot now the match between the former HSV player and coach and Werder Bremen was truly one made in hell. Uh, and Margaret was let go in the end, only for Thomas Schaaf to arrive at the end of the 98-99 season. So tumultuous years at the Werder Stadium, where the club seemingly was in search of itself without finding the right answers. Um, back when Schaaf arrived, the club was really in dire straits, wasn't it? Yeah, definitely. And like exactly that happened. Uh, what I said before could could have happened with Rehagel as well. Lemke was in charge, but he was like the coach had all the responsibility in, in sporting decisions wise, so they don't have like they don't have a clear politics which players to sign or not. And that was that was a big problem during that time. Um but like the advantage if we compare that to today is that they weren't financially in that dire situation that they are in now because of we don't spend money we don't have was still in place during that time, which meant they didn't have a lot of money, but they also don't have uh, loans um, and, and stuff. So they, they still were in, in the black. Um, um, yeah, and, and that's, I think, is one reason why they were able 
to turn things around. And uh, of course, the other is that they install with Klaus Alofs, they installed uh, a successor of Lemke, um, whose forte was the sporting side of things. And he wasn't just a financial um, leader of the club like Lemke was. He, he was the guy uh, responsible for sporting decisions and 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 it was overdue to uh install a guy like that uh, in a club i mean we're talking 1999 and they didn't really have a sporting director back then Mm. well after verdonerity escape relegation in 99 uh Results started stabilizing under under Thomas Schaaf. In 2000, the club finished ninth. That was followed up by a seventh-place finish and then two sixth-place finishes in 2002 and 2003. And finally, in 2004, Werder Bremen took home the double. Yes, the club won both the league and the DFB Pokal. So you already mentioned uh, Alves there, Uh as being a big part of that massive turnaround. Um, are there any other good answers for why the club was able to turn things around so drastically on the pitch? Yeah, it's like like always, I think in football, luck is, uh, also played a part because Bremen really wanted Hansi Müller as Lemke's successor, but he decided in the end to stay at Stuttgart because he didn't want to be apart from his family. That's why Alofs got in there. And was it wasn't Rune Bratzet the second choice? I you know I I seem to remember in Norwegian media that there was a yeah. lot written about Rune Bratzet being you know talked about yeah. at Bremen. He, he definitely was talked about. I'm not sure how hot that was with Hansi Müller. It was like uh, you can find kicker stories from then, and you really can find a story where he says why he's not going to Bremen. So it was really hot with uh, Müller, but in the end it it just weren't decided. And then they had. A stroke of luck because, I mean, do you know the first transfer that Alos did? The first transfer that Alos did? Um, that must have been 2000. No, no I, I don't. No, uh, 1999. 1999, the first transfer. Um, I'm sorry, I did put you on the spot here yeah i mean the first transfer i you know i i i, rem- I followed the, <laughs> the first transfer can, can you can you name the position of the player yeah he actually was a defender a central defender but um, is it frank bauman no um bauman was already there as yeah bauman was already there um uh, it was julio cesar and Julio Cesar, yes, the Brazilian who tidied up the defense. Yes, and um, he was probably one of the most important transfers of Bremen who's never talked about because um, he he just, I think he just went on playing 20 games for them because he had a lot of injury issues, like uh, also <laughs> a theme we'll maybe hit on later. But he was like, he was a guy who uh, got Ailton out of his shelf. Uh, Ailton called him Papa. And um, it's always said that Thomas Schaaf rescued Ailton from this time under Felix Magath, which is all only partly true. Because when the 1999-2000 uh, season started, Ailton didn't even wa- uh, were in the, in the, in the match squad. Um and a guy called Søren Seidel played up front 
as a striker. And that was before, before Julio Cesar was there. Because um, it took Bremen a lot of time again to get a successor for Lemke. So when they were doing no transfers after being nearly being relegated, they didn't do any transfers. Then um, the story how, how Cesar played is un unbelievable, actually, because he was already retired, came to Alof's office. He, he just went on... Uh, Uh, being the the sporting director of Bremen, he came into the office and wanted to get some of his clients to get a trial for Bremen. And I've said, no, we're not interested, but I'm interested in you. How, how about you pick up your boots again? And that actually what uh, is what happened in the end. So uh, yeah, unreal story. Second big transfer of that summer, of course, Claudio Pizarro. And that's why I uh, ask you that question, because usually... Everyone thinks that Pizarro was the first out of I, I, I would I would have answered Pizarro if you wouldn't have said defender. But when you ask, I was sort of I was sort of, I mean it's sort of like I was I was sort of getting unsure whether or not it was Pizarro. But Pizarro was actually um, discovered by another man who was who was quite important for for Werder Bremen during that time, and that is Jürgen Born, isn't it? Yes, and that's also one thing. What's wrong? What was wrong with the club? Like. Jürgen Born was a, a board member and he was going to be um, I'm, uh, uh, the head of the board. What's that, the English term? I'm not sure if that. The but CEO? Yeah, probably. Um, but he still worked for a German bank in South America and he was uh, bored sitting in his hotel room looking at a, a game of Alianza Lima and saying, oh, this guy up front there, <laughs> he's pretty good went on looking at a practice session of them, called back to Bremen and said, I, I, I found a guy here, he's pretty good. And Alos went over uh, to Peru, also uh, visited practice sessions, saw Pizarro, uh, saw a video of him. And uh, he, he once described that when he knew that they had to sign Pizarro, was, uh, he, he saw a video of goals of him. And I mean, he scored a lot of goals before he even got to Bremen. Um, but there was one in particular that um, somebody took a shot and it hit the post. And everyone, like all defenders, all strikers, they all went in the wrong um, direction to get the rebound. Only one player, like he had it right where the ball would be after the rebound, and that was Pizarro. And, and, and Alos said uh, about that, like, he, he knew that's something you can't learn. It's just this instinct where, where in which position to put yourselves in. And, yeah, yeah, Alos should know as a, as a former attacker himself. Yes. Um, oh. So um, Pizarro is a bit like the modern-day Rudy Fuller, because um, Rudy Fuller didn't get crowned champion with Bremen. Uh, he didn't even win a title uh, with Bremen. And um, it's similar with Pizarro. Later on, he won the cup with, uh, in 2009 with Bremen. But he didn't win the, uh, a title. But he was pivotal for Bremen winning the title because they sold him for a boatload of money in 2001. And he was like one of the stepping stones to get the club financially wise on a higher level. And to being able um, to build 
the team that ultimately won the double in 2004. So sometimes it's the guy that are not there that are really important. And with, like I said, with Julio Cesar, he was he was so important to many. Like even Frank Baumann uh, to to this day uh, is saying how much he learned from playing alongside uh, Julio Cesar. Uh, who who won the Champions League in, uh, with Dortmund in 1997? So he he was a world class defender. Right now, uh, Frank Bauman is sitting in his office looking at videos of retired Brazilian internationals trying to find the next Julio Cesar who can pair up in mid defence with Anthony Young. Um, yes. Be, <laughs> be that as that may, um, one one stat that truly is mind boggling from from that time, and um, if if you haven't followed the Bundesliga for for more than a decade, you probably might have heard about it, but maybe have forgotten. But Werder Bremen qualified for the Champions League each season between 2004 and 2010, except for the 08-09 season when the team finished 10th. But that season they actually went on to win the DFB Pokal, which meant they qualified for the UEFA Cup, which they nearly went on to win the following year. At the no, same... they, uh, it wasn't that year. They they were dreaming of the Pubel. Which it called. They they were win. They won the cup in two thousand nine, and they were in the final of the Europa League in two thousand nine. The year oh. the year after that, I think they lost in the quarter. Or I th- think it was the semifinal, but uh, they they went out. I think against Glasgow, if I remember mm, correctly. There you go. Um, at the same time, Voda was still forced to bow to the mechanisms of football business, meaning that whenever they managed to develop a great player, Bayern or Schalke with Rudi Assauer, or another club with deeper pockets would arrive and pick up that player. Um, so how on earth did the club manage to breed such success despite the fact that a lot of the great players that were there had to be moved on at the end of each season? Well, that uh, sporting success that they had led to financial success as well. And of course, like top players went, but they were able to sustain the core. Um, I, I looked at the players they lost during that year, uh, years, and I mean, it's not that much if you come to think about it. They lost Ayrton and Kristajic after the double season to Schalke. They lost Ismail um, to Bayern and Ernst to Schalke in 2005. Then in, next year, they didn't lose anyone, but they brought in a player like Thorsten Frings, for instance, which shows you how like they were playing with the big boys now uh, after playing the Champions League for a few years. They were able to sustain um, their team. In 2007, close event. So that was another big loss. And in 2009, Diego... 2010 Özil and then that's basically when all like the most important players were gone and I mean in 2010 I mean and during that decade between in the odds and until 10 there was actually two cores of the national team there were the Bayern players and the Bremen players yeah um so I mean it's insane to think about these days that yeah, I, I think in two thousand six, Grim players scored the most goals for the German international team. Um, yeah, there you go. Uh, Miroslav Klose, of course, yeah. being one of them. Yeah. Um, so <laughs> that in itself is is pretty incredible. 
Um, and we shouldn't, I mean, when it comes to the success and, and the early success, we shouldn't forget the part that John Miku, the Frenchman, played. Yes, yeah, of course. Um, uh, he, he, he was one of the guys um, that Brim were able to sign because of the Pizarro money. Uh, he wasn't expensive in what they had to play, uh, pay for Palmer. And also that was like luck played a big part. Um, France had a abysmal World Cup in 2002. Zidane was suspended, I think, for the first two matches of this World Cup. And Miku, who was always in the shadow of Zidane, everyone thought now is the time for him to shine. And that France, as the reigning world champion, went out in the group stages in 2002. Like, it was all Miku. All Miku's fault. No one wanted to do, have to do anything with him after that World Cup. And that was why Bremer were able um, to sign him. And um, I love said afterwards about it, like uh, uh, an agent called him and, and said that Miku is available for little money that after that call, he, he had goosebumps uh, all over him. Because he he knew what what a great player he was, and and of course um, he's a, a pivotal player. His name is Le Chef, not because he's cooking well. Uh, it's <laughs> <laughs> chef is the German word for boss, and uh, so uh, I mean he he might be cooking well. Yeah, I mean, yeah probably. He's, he, he's, uh, he he's he has a he, wine yard right now. He's so. a, yeah, he he's a wine producer, yeah. so he, he he must know something about good food. Yeah, surely. I, I just wanted to to emphasize it's not because of his cooking skills that he's got. Oh, <laughs> and and he was cooking in uh, attacking midfield, uh, so it's, it would also fit. What, one of the one of the biggest reasons why why Miroslav Klose left uh, Bremen for Bayern, and and that is written in his uh, the biography that Ronald Reng has written about Miroslav Klose is, is the fact that Miku left and Diego arrived. And uh, with Miku, Klose always knew where the passes were going to end up and that he would get them with, uh, with the precision out of this world. Whilst with Diego, well, Diego was always doing, trying to round another player, going for the shot himself. And that was quite frustrating for, for Miroslav Klose, who really didn't get along with Diego and yeah. then decided to to leave the club. I, I don't buy that at all. Um, you don't buy that no, at all? No, um, I, I'm, I mean, I'm the money might have played a role. Um, uh, at the start of the 2006-2007 season, I think, I think to this day, Closer had the best time that like he, he was at his best time of uh, his career. He scored a lot of money and then he went on Meeting up with Bayern at a hotel at the Hannover airport, got seen by it like two days before Bremen had a pivotal match uh, in a European competition, went on, um, got an early red-yellow card in that game. Bremen went out of the competition and uh, like he just stopped scoring because like it was too much um, trouble going on. But like he started out streaking hot with Diego. So I, I think it's some kind of not saying what the real reason is, like like the, the amount of money he got more from Bayern than at Bremen 
like at least had to play a little part in that decision. Not only that, yeah, sure, sure. Uh, I mean, Biku, but it was, it was also uh, he an influencing factor. <laughs> I, I think, I, well, you know, I mean, it's it's what he's what was written about him yeah, in, in Royal yeah, Ranks. Yeah, I know. Of, of course, he, he's telling that story, um, and uh, maybe he he thinks of it as if it's true. I I don't want to hold it against it, but it's not backed up by stats and. Um, like in in this year 2006 2007 i'm i'm convinced to this day if like this wouldn't have happened with uh closer meeting up with bayern and getting all the trouble and then not scoring and that brim would have been crowned champion they um they won a lot of championships where they were the outsiders at that year they really had the best team and like they, I, it's the only year i can probably um, point at and saying, yeah, Brim had the best uh, team in the Bundesliga, uh, and that's 2006, 2007. Um, yeah, so uh, I think it's some kind of late redemption of of Klose uh, to pointing in other direction. But he was one key part why it didn't happen in the end. <laughs> All right. Um, well. Uh... Who knows what's true? Yeah. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm just. I'm, uh, I, I want to back that story up, and I just want to look at closer stats um, from that season. But for some reason, my uh, internet connection is a bit slow. So he scored 13 goals um, during that season, which is not much, but. Um, he scored four, six, eight. He had ten goals uh, in the Hin Runde, um, and only three goals in the Rick Runde. So, for me, it's more what happened than um, than the Diego side of things. He was doing really well um, uh, with Diego during the Hin Runde and that season. Yeah. He wasn't actually in the squad for the 25th match day, by the way, which was the game against Bayern, I just saw. Yes. <laughs> for unknown reasons. Um, <laughs> all right. I think this is it for the first episode of our mini-series, Werder Bremen, a club in demise. Hope you enjoyed it. Uh, Flo, great chatting with you about our favorite club. Yes. Thanks for having me. and looking forward to future episodes. All right, next time we'll be focusing on the end of Thomas Schaffer's reign at the Weserstadion and what followed. Until then, it is goodbye for now. Mm -hmm.